Let's begin with a word of prayer. Amen. (laughs) Father, thank you for the time that we can come together in the name of your son, Jesus, to hear your word proclaimed and then to allow the Holy Spirit to find a home in our hearts for your word. We ask that you would please nourish us and feed us and give us attentive listening ears for we do so as our continued act of worship. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's an old saying, you can't see the forest through the trees. It's kind of an idiomatic saying. It means that you can't discern an overall pattern. You can't see the big picture because you're so preoccupied. You're focused on the detail that it obscures the overall situation from you. So the big picture that we've been looking at, not only in the book of Acts, but also in the book of Luke, in Luke's two volumes, the big picture, um, well, actually the big picture of the New Testament of the entire Bible, of all redemptive history, uh, actually of all creation. The big picture of all creation is this. It's the hope of Israel. It's not a what, it's a who. And the problem for Israel is that Israel has and continues to miss the big picture, the hope of Israel, because she's been too preoccupied with a certain facet of Israel's Redeemer. Uh, She has been unable to see the forest for the trees. The hope of Israel was for a Messiah. But more than that, that the Messiah would be the Redeemer King. Uh, More than that, the hope is for restoration with God because we are sinners fallen from His grace. And more than that, because of our sin, uh, we face death. And when we die, part of what we are as humans is separated from us, the soul from the body. And in order for us to be fully redeemed again, there needs to be a resurrection. And so that is also part of the hope that we have in the restoration, the redemption of fallen creation. That's Israel's hope. Now, Paul tells us today that he's in chains because of the hope of Israel. Um, God uh, fulfilled the hope of Israel by sending a Messiah and then by spending his wrath for our sin against that Messiah, and then raising him up. And so that's all part of one picture, the sending, the spending of the wrath, the raising him up. And and one facet, that raising him up, includes three different uh, sub-parts of it, and that would be his resurrection, his ascension, and his exaltation or his glorification. So the resurrection is a big picture in who the Messiah is, and that is promised to Israel throughout the Old Testament, throughout the, the, the prophets and from Moses, there's this promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit and the resurrection and of this eschatological day of the Spirit. Now, I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn with me for the last time in the book of Acts to Acts chapter 18, verse 17. We will technically conclude our study in the book of Acts today. Remember, we started with the ascension of Jesus and his last words to his disciples, telling them to stay in Jerusalem and to wait until the Holy Spirit came, the promise of the Father who would give them power in their witness and power to carry that word to the, throughout the world. And so we're in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Now when we get to Acts chapter 2, there's 120 people gathered together waiting on the day of Pentecost for this promised Holy Spirit. Um, The Holy Spirit comes and He fills them. 
On that day, 3,000 people are converted, and they also are filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, that's just the beginning of many more who came to recognize that Jesus is the Messiah, the hope of Israel. That we face persecution at the hands of the Jewish leadership. Uh, Stephen becomes the first martyr, shortly followed by James. Um, then Luke, the author of Acts, begins to focus on Peter's ministry. The gospel goes out from Jerusalem to the Samaritans. We're in Acts chapter 8 now. They also are filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, Peter has a revelation that the gospel is supposed to go out to the Gentiles, and this vision sends him, therefore, to the home of the centurion uh, Cornelius, and he receives the word, and he and his whole household are filled with the Holy Spirit. We're in Acts chapter 10, verse 44-ish. And then Luke shifts his attention from Peter to the chief persecutor of the church, who is Saul of Tarsus. Saul is on his way to Damascus to persecute the Christians, and he encounters the risen Lord. There he's converted. Um, he is anxious to preserve pure Judaism, but the Lord tells him pure Judaism focuses on the coming of the Messiah. That's the hope of Israel. And so Saul sees this light, both metaphorically and really, and he is converted and he makes a 360, well, that would be a 180 about face. 360, you'd be right back where you started from. He makes a 180 about face and uh, begins, begins to preach primarily to the Jews about Jesus, who is the Messiah, the hope of Israel. Shortly thereafter, Barnabas finds Saul and asks him to join him in his mission at Antioch. Um, then a few verses later, we're now in Acts chapter 13, verse 1-ish. You know, Barnabas asks Saul to join him. Then Saul and Barnabas are commissioned to be missionaries to the Gentiles. And this is a monumental change in the book of Acts when, when Saul and Barnabas go out on this missionary trip. Three missionary journeys follow. They travel a total of 15,000 miles. And everywhere that Paul goes, he's... He's beat up, he's stoned, he's, he's uh, uh, chased from town to town. But everywhere that Paul is chased from, new vibrant churches have sprung up behind him in the wake of his persecution. Churches at this time who are full of Gentiles and Jews, and they come to know the forgiveness of, of God through Jesus. They come to realize the power of transformed lives from the presence of the Holy Spirit. And also in this time, Paul is mentoring the next generation of Christian leaders as he mentors Timothy and Titus to care for these growing churches. In Paul's last trip to Jerusalem, he is uh, falsely accused of bringing a Gentile into the temple. He's arrested by the Romans, and then several years of incarceration pass. Um, Paul testifies before two Roman governors and one Jewish king, and finally Paul ends up appealing his case to Rome in order to not fall into the hands of the Jews. There's a rough winter where Paul is in transit from Caesarea to uh, Rome. Paul finally ends, gets there in Rome, but it's 10 years after the church has already been planted in Rome. There have been Christians in Rome for, for at least 10 years before he even gets there. He is, however, very pleasantly surprised by the reception that he gets because the Roman Christians hear that he's coming 
and many of them walk out of the city as much as 40 miles to greet Paul and then to usher him triumphantly, welcoming him into the city. And we have this picture, if you will, of the triumphal entry of Jesus when he comes into Jerusalem on the first day of Holy Week, where the crowds go out to meet Jesus and usher him in, in triumphantly into the city. And we have a picture of when Jesus comes again back to Jerusalem, where the saints, both those living and dead, will be resurrected, raptured to be with him, and usher him in, bring him back into the city when he comes back again. Now, Luke tells us that uh, this entourage that meets Paul outside of the city um, gives Paul great encouragement. He's really happy about the fact that they're welcoming him, that they're glad to see him. The Roman centurion then delivers his prisoners, <clears throat> all except one, to the Roman prison. Paul is not put into the jail, into prison. He's now under house arrest, which means while he can't go anywhere, his friends can come, people can come to, to visit him. <clears throat> it also means that that entire time he's chained to a Roman soldier, a guard. So the guards would be chained at the wrist to Paul four hours at a time. They would be on this rotation, <clears throat> which meant in a 24-hour day, you know, he's, he's been chained to uh, uh, six different guards during that time. So there are six guards on a day's rotation, 16 different guards altogether in that rotation. And I'm sure many of them did not appreciate being chained to Paul because they would hear the same thing day after day after day. But nevertheless, as a consequence of being chained to Paul, Paul reminds the Philippians in uh, chapter 4, verse 22, all the saints send you greetings, especially those of the household of Caesar. So there's been an effect of these guards being chained to Paul because this is a dynamic opportunity for the gospel to reach out from Paul under arrest to the very household of Caesar. And that brings us now to verse 17 of chapter 28 the last chapter of Acts. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our father, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for a death penalty in my case. But because of the Jews objecting, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I've asked to see you and speak with you, and here's the clue, here's my thesis for today, since it's because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. So Paul, he's not free to go out to them. He contacts the Jewish leaders, the rabbis, the elders, um, to come and gather around him and, and hear from him. Now, we know quite a bit about the, the Jews that were living in Rome during that time. It's estimated there was perhaps between 20 and 50,000 Jews that lived in Rome. Remember when we were talking about when Paul meets Aquila and Priscilla, and they had come because they'd got kicked out of Rome about 10 years earlier. Um, that we're told by the Roman historian, uh, I can't think of his name, at any rate, that, that the Jews had been kicked out of Rome because of a contention with those who were followers of a certain man named Crestus. So the Jews had been kicked out because Crestus is a, 
a synonym for Christ. The Jews had been kicked out 10 years earlier. So apparently quite a few of them had filtered back into Rome because now there's 20 to 50,000 Jews living in Rome. And mostly they lived in this area called the Trans-Tiberium, which just means across the Tiber River. It was the Augustus had divided the city into 14 regions. This is the 14th of the 14 regions. Um, it was the foreign quarter uh, of Rome. It was full of narrow streets and tenements, very crowded conditions. Um, and, and this is where the, the bulk of the Jews were. Now, it always had been Paul's pattern whenever he went to a different community to first bring the gospel to the Jews. So in every place that we see Paul, the first thing he does is he goes to the synagogue of that, of that town. In this case, um, he asked them to come to him because of his condition of being arrested. So, but he's following that same pattern of going to the Jew first. In, in this particular instance, Paul has been accused of being anti-Semitic, which is not at all true. He's not, he has nothing against his countrymen. He's been mistreated by them, but he bears no ill will against them. Despite the the abuse, the, the persecution that he has experienced from the Jewish people, he bears the Jews no animosity. And so he, he wants to assure them right away that he's not there to bring a charge against the Jewish people. It's a very delicate task that's before Paul right now. He has to explain why he's there as a prisoner, and yet... Uh, while he insists on his innocence, he's not bringing charge against the Jew. Now, you might wonder, well, why would that even come up? Well, that's real common even today. You know, if somebody sues you, the first thing you do is counter-sue because not only do you want to prove your innocence in the suit against you, you want to imply that your opponent is the one who's actually guilty. And so that's what he's trying to assure the Jews that's not happening. I'm bringing no charge against them. I got no problems with that. With, with the Jews what, whatsoever. But it is a delicate task. Now, this is the sixth and final time that he will defend himself before the Jews. So you have the, you know, when he gets arrested and he's on the steps outside the temple and then uh, the, before the Jerusalem council and then uh, before Felix and the, and the Jewish uh, lawyer Tertullus and the high priest and then Festus and then Agrippa this and this is the sixth time he defends himself before the Jews so uh, he says to them shortly after he gets there he says a brother though I've done nothing against our people or the customs of our father yet I was delivered prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans remember the Sanhedrin had accused him of three things they accused him of sedition they accused him of of uh, being the, uh, a ringleader of a heretical sect, and they accused him of violating the sanctity of the temple. Well, these guys, these Roman Jews, really don't care too much whether he's accused of sedition against Rome. So Paul doesn't even bring it up. He doesn't mention it. But he's very adamant that he, he defends himself. He categorically denies that he's, he's done anything else against them. I've done nothing against my people or the customs of our father. See, it's only because of the hostility of the Sanhedrin that he's even there, delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. Now, to support his claim of innocence, uh, he points out that when the Romans had examined him, um, they were willing to release me because there was no ground for putting me to death. In fact, three different Roman 
officials had examined him and declared that he was innocent and should be released. The uh, tribune Claudius Lysias in Acts 23, um, the governor Felix in Acts 24, um, Festus in Acts 25, and although he's not a Roman uh, official, remember he also stood before King Herod in Acts 26, and King Herod also would have affirmed his innocence. So in spite of these three separate Roman hearings, all of whom decided he should be released because he's innocent, there he is, um, there in, in jail. Now the reason that, in, that they uh, kept him in, in jail, or kept him incarcerated in spite of his innocence is because it was politically prudent to do so. And Bill would remind me that's always the case of judges they're doing what's poli politically prudent, not what's, what's legally uh, right. So pa Paul is then forced to appeal his case to Caesar, um, hastening to add that I, I had no accusation against my nation. Um, he doesn't want anything to, to uh, interfere with, with his, uh, his witness to the Jews. His presence there, he's saying, is strictly defensive, it's not offensive, he's, he's not the accuser here. Then he brings up the real issue. The real issue, he says, is um, I, I, the reason for my imprisonment is I'm wearing this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel. So again, that's this glorious hope that Israel has of a Messiah, of resurrection and of restoration with, with God again. And that involved this coming kingdom that the Messiah would bring. And so Paul is preaching Jesus as this resurrected king who is the, the first of many who will be resurrected, of this restoration we can have with God who establishes now this spiritual kingdom based on salvation who will in fact establish a physical kingdom, a political kingdom that the Jews were looking for. But they're missing the, all of the rest of what I've described to you except the political kingdom. They're making that the one basis on whether Jesus is the true Messiah or not. And they're missing the forest for the trees. He's on trial, he says, for the hope of Israel. That's a reoccurring theme throughout the Bible and certainly throughout Paul's defense. When he was before the Sanhedrin, Paul says, perceiving that, that one part were Sadducees, the other part Pharisees, he began to cry out in the council, brethren, I'm a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I'm on trial for the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he stood before Felix in trial, Paul declared, says, but I, I admit to you that according to the way, which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing that everything is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men cherish, that there certainly will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So they have this, this hope in the resurrection, which is grounded firmly in the Old Testament. In fact, you have in, in, in the book of Job, you have, um, even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, to whom my eyes shall see, not another. And then Isaiah prophesied, your dead will live, their corpses will rise, you who lie in the dust, awake and shout, for your dew is the dew of the dawn, the earth 
will give birth to departed spirits. That's Isaiah 26. Then again in Daniel, Daniel chapter 12, Daniel's told, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So this concept of, rev of resurrection is not new to the Jews. It's part of their hope. It's part of their understanding of what God will do in redeeming the fallen creation. It's just that they're so fixated on a political kingdom, they're willing to completely ignore the rest of the picture. Verse 21, they said to him, we have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it's spoken against. Now, now Luke tells us right away that they say they haven't heard anything. No one's brought any bad report about Paul. And we might say, well, well why is that? It certainly seemed like, well, one, he shows up as a prisoner. There would be recorded charge against him. There would be the, the declaration for his court appearance. And... <clears throat> Uh, it, it may quite well be the fact that, remember, Paul has had a rough winter getting here to Jerusalem. He started late in the fall, uh, too late. They ended up in the storm. He spends most of the winter on Malta, and they leave Malta a little too early. Remember, I tell, keep telling you the dates that the, the sea is closed, Mara Klaslam. The sea is closed during these dates. So Paul is one of the first people to get from Judea to Rome. It's unlikely that the Jewish officials have had time to get there, even though it's been several months, um, because of, they would have waited out the weather. So that's, that's probably what's, what's held them up. Um, but at any rate, they say they have received no charges, no word against him. <clears throat> and they feel therefore compelled to hear what he has had to say. So they say, we haven't heard any charges against you. But then right away they, they, they turn and say, but we have heard something about this heretical sect of the Nazarene. We've heard something about this, this Jesus stuff. And frankly, what we've heard isn't all that flattering because it's spoken ill of everywhere. It's not good. Paul says, well, I'm glad you asked that because that's exactly where I was leading to anyway. So why don't we get together sometime? We can talk about this. I'd like to express it more fully to you. I'll tell you what this teaching is all about. Now, I want you to notice these inquirers are serious. They're not just trying to pigeonhole Paul. They really do want to know. See, it's their duty as the leaders and teachers of Israel to examine to hear testimony, and to make judgment. And that's exactly what they intend to do with regard to Christianity. And they give their proof of their sincerity by fixing a date for a larger meeting. Verse 23. <clears throat> when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. Now notice right away, more people come to the second meeting than were at the first meeting. So not only the Jewish rabbis, the elders, but probably some of the more uh, important dignitaries in the, the community, the Jewish community, some of the, the businessmen were, would also have been there. Um, this would have included 
actually several different Jewish communities. We know of at the time that there were about 11 synagogues listed. There may have been others, but we're talking about a rather large Jewish community. And so quite a few of these guys show up at this meeting and um, they, they want to hear Paul speak. Now, you may be adverse as Bill is. Bill reminds me every week to keep my sermons down to 20 minutes. Not going to happen. But you might, you know, when you have to endure my long sermons, you know, you might wonder, these guys sat with Paul all day long. Probably he wasn't preaching that whole time. You know, I don't, being a preacher, I think you run out of things to say before that. But we shouldn't think of this as being a monologue where Paul is just teaching all day long. This is more of a dialogue. Remember, he's talking to Jewish rabbis who were very well acquainted as he is with the scripture, the Old Testament, and they would be asking him questions. And anytime Paul would give a distinctly Christian view or interpretation of scripture, they're there to challenge him. So there's going to be quite a bit of of exchange where, where Paul is expounding the scriptures and they're challenging him on it. They're asking him about it and they're, they want to know more information. So there's this dialogue of being questioned which goes on all day long. I, I wish Luke had told us a little bit more about what the, Paul talked about or how the dialogue went. And so we don't have any record of that. I really wish we did because it would really, I think it'd be really important to understand how he develops his thought to these Jewish rabbis who are coming at it cold. They don't have any previous information. We're, that's the assumption. Okay, so we don't know exactly what Paul said or how he said it, but I think it's fair to surmise what Paul said and how because it's only been three years since Paul wrote to these people, the, the people of Rome, about a defense of Christianity. And so he's probably following the outline of the book of Romans um, that he has written to them. By the way, that's where we're going after the book of Acts. We're going to go to the book of Romans. He would have been, uh, he would have started out talking about it's, you know, it's our, our obligation to know God, to love God, to worship Him, to, to love Him with all our hearts, minds, souls, and strength, because that's not a New Testament concept. That's just reiterated from Old Testament teaching. And they, appoint would, they, of course, would have heard this point of contact with these Jewish hearers because they understand that's our obligation in the fulfillment of Scripture to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Then Paul would have gone on to say that all have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us are missing God's standards. And he would have explained that, uh, as he did in the early part of Romans, that you know, Gentiles have rejected this knowledge of God. But so too we Jews have rejected this knowledge of God. We've missed it. We have substituted our own righteousness for God's righteousness. The book of Romans tells us over and over about an alien righteousness, a righteousness that belongs to Jesus, which we rest on, not our own righteousness. And he would have said, you know, we have, we've forgot these matters of faith and trust and hope. And we've begun to rely as Jews more on, on ceremony and, and uh, instead of having a, a heart relationship to, to God, we've been relying on this, this ceremonial relationship to God. And then Paul must have continued by, by saying, you see, 
it's not really a question before God of being Jewish or being Gentile because all of us are sinners. He says in Romans 3.10, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. Those are the words not only to the Romans, they're found also in the Psalms. You see, he's paralleling Old Testament with the proclamation of the, the gospel. In Psalms 14 and Psalms 53, and his hearers would have known these texts. They would have been very familiar with that. And then Paul would have shifted from that to talk about the person of Jesus, how Jesus is the hope of Israel. The Messiah has come, he would have argued. Well, at this point, they would have certainly interrupted him and said, you know, we're looking for the Messiah. We're expecting the Messiah. We want the Messiah to come. We feel like he's coming soon. But not Jesus, not this Nazarene fellow. You know, he's, he's not the Messiah we were looking for. Paul would have gone on then to point out how many of these Old Testament prophecies were directly answered in the person of Jesus. These Old Testament prophecies are about him, and he fulfills all these prophecies. Again, the Jews were looking for a day when God would reestablish Israel as the, the dominant chosen nation of the world. And Paul would say, yes, that is going to happen, but not yet, because the Messiah first had to come and offer himself as a substitutionary sacrifice for the sins of the world before he could establish this political kingdom. And he spoke authoritatively about the kingdom and how Jesus is the fulfillment of all of those prophets. The kingdom looks to Jesus. The kingdom blossoms in the person of Jesus. The kingdom is about Jesus. This is the, the fact that they couldn't get past because they can't see the forest for the trees. And testifying about the kingdom meant preaching the gospel and the good news that God sovereignly calls sinners who are hopelessly caught in the realm of death, of Satan and destruction, and he calls them to be part of the realm of salvation and life and glory. And he proclaims this good news of salvation through Jesus Christ and how we have that through his righteous living. And he points the way for all men to find salvation and enjoy fellowship with God. Verse 25. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal him. You know, isn't it interesting? There's this interesting parallel between the call of Isaiah and the call of Paul, his Damascus experience, the parallel between Isaiah's call in the temple and Paul's call at Damascus. You know, Isaiah volunteers for this mission, and God tells him, go, but be aware of this. The people you're going to preach to, they're not going to listen to you. They're... God himself is going to make their hearts dull, their ears deaf, their eyes blind, lest they see with their, with their eyes and hear with their heart, and when they understand and embrace and be converted. Isaiah 6, verses 9 and 10-ish. 
See, Isaiah is given this mission, which is really a mission impossible. Go and preach to them, they're not going to listen. Go and convert them, they're going to ignore you. And Paul has been given a very similar commission. You go to the Jews, but they're not going to listen to you. Why not? Because they don't want to hear. They don't want to see. They don't want to listen. So he's given this mission impossible. Paul says that... Uh, that he, 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 he's speaking to them, but they will not respond. They will not receive it. They, they will reject it. And some people will say, how is it fair that God requires us to hear and to see, to listen and to welcome him with our hearts, and yet he himself makes us unable to see, unable to hear, and unable to respond with our heart? How is that fair? Well, the answer is because they, they're being judged for what they already are. They're, the judgment is upon people who, in the first place, don't want to hear. They don't want to see. Uh, they don't want to be converted. And we see so often in God's economy of justice, in God's judgment, that the penalty is the crime. Remember when Jesus was talking about the Pharisees? He says, don't be like the Pharisees. They, they like to pray in public. They like everybody to admire them. They have what they wanted. They have their reward in full. We as a nation say, we don't want God. We don't want him involved in our courts. We don't want him involved in our society. Okay, you may have that. And here we have people who don't want to hear God. They don't want to see God. They don't want to have their heart exposed. And God says, that's your judgment. The judgment is the crime. These Jews in Rome, they refuse to believe Paul, and they're just continuing their nation's sad history of rejecting God's messengers. I mean, it's several times in Jeremiah, God laments their condition. In Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah 7, 25, God says, Since the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt until this day, I have sent you all my servants, the prophets, daily rising early and sending them. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did even more evil than their fathers. You know, re, Israel's habit of rejecting God's messengers reminds us of the parable that Jesus gave um, in uh, Matthew 21, where God sends his servants into the vineyard, and they kept rejecting, rejecting him and killing the messengers, and finally they ended up killing his own son. These words are words of judgment. The Jews who rejected Jesus from the words of Paul are just imitating the exact same pattern as the Jews who rejected, the, the, rejected God through his messengers. And so God is now pronouncing judgment upon these unbelievers. Now, the, these guys get the point. They're quite offended by it. They understand what Paul's saying, that because Israel has refused to hear and obey God, that God is going to cause them to be unable to hear and obey. They get it. They understand the point, but they're very offended by that. We should note also that uh, Jesus gave that story, Matthew chapter 6, no, Luke chapter 8. Jesus gives a story uh, when he says that, that, remember, the disciples asked him about the, the meaning of the parable, and Jesus says, to you, it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but to others they're in parables so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. So in Jesus' time, 
Miracle after miracle is performed in their sight, and they won't believe it. And in Paul's case, he's showing them how the Messiah is the hope of Israel, the ultimate fulfillment of all the Scripture, but they won't hear it. And here's the result. Since you will not hear, since you will not see, since you will not believe, verse 28, therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. So in the book of Acts, Paul ends his discussion, Luke ends the words of the, the book by saying this, this hope of Israel that has been rejected by Israel is now being taken to the Gentiles. That is a horrific thought if you're Jewish. The hope of Israel will now become the hope of the Gentiles. And finally, even in disbelief, the Jews reject, but we are also reminded that even in their rejection, the gospel will go forth, the gospel will find those who believe. It's kind of a, there's a, there's a parabolic illustration of this in Matthew 22 that's really the outline of the whole book of Acts when you think about it. I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but you see here, remember that illustration? God prepares this great feast, and he calls for all of the people to come to the wedding feast of his son. And so during the life of Jesus, God has provided the son, the, the heir, and told him about the wedding feast, and he calls them. And then he sends out a second invitation after all things are ready. So now during the time of the apostles, it's all finished. The redemption is completed. The, the gospel is done. Jesus has accomplished it all. Tetelestai, it is finished. Now after all things are ready, he issues another call, and still they won't come, and they end up killing the messengers. And then finally, God issues a call that all would be invited to come, but only if they are dressed appropriately in the garments that he himself provides, which is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. God invites all, Jew and Gentile alike, to come to the wedding feast, to come into the kingdom, but only under the condition that you come dressed in the righteousness of Christ and not pretending that you have a righteousness of, of your own to recommend yourself before God. That guy gets thrown out. So we have to ask, well, why, does the, why do the Jews turn their back on Jesus? Why did they reject the, the message? You know, why do they reject the, the, the message of the apostles? Well, we have here three explanations, all of which are true and all of which are important. The first is that the prophets had predicted long ago that there would be the apostasy of the chosen people, and Jesus is fulfilling that. They reject him, they're apostate. Second, their hearts are hard. They've become impervious to repentance. You know, there is such a thing in the life of a human being and in the life of a, of a race of people where they reach the point of no return. There's no turning back. It's not always open to you to receive Christ anytime you want later on. While you reject him now, while you put him off, you continue to accumulate a life of sinfulness and rebellion. You are less likely with time 
to turn to him. And at some point, there is this point of no return, and the Jews have reached this point of no return. The Puritan John Owen described this condition when he said they had become sermon-proof and sickness-proof. The third thing is that God is judging them for a long, dismal history of the hardness of their heart and the rejection of His covenant. Now, to be sure, many Jews were saved, and many Jews continue to be saved, but it's a surviving remnant that all through history there, there will be some uh, this tiny fraction in the total Jewish population, and such is the discriminating grace of God. That's the way it's always been. These Jews, for the large part, turn away from the gospel. They turn away from Jesus Christ. And in so doing, they are ushering in the age of the Gentiles or the, the increasing realm of the Gentiles. In other words, the hope of Israel has become the hope of the whole world. Verse 30, he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching them about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So what happened during the two years that Paul's under house arrest in Rome? Well, he continues his evangelistic uh, campaign. I already read to you from Philippians 4.22 about those of the household of Caesar greet you. Philippians 1.13, um, I want you to know, brothers, that what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So there's evangelism that's taking place. The gospel's going out to an area which was completely unavailable to the, the common Christian. And so what was the... Well, also while he was there, he wrote... Um, at least four New Testament epistles. He wrote Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and Philemon while he's under this house arrest for these two years. So what's the reason for these two years of imprisonment? Well, could be just because of the backlog in court cases. It takes a while to get there, and his case isn't really that, that important. It's not going to surface to the top, and so maybe it's just court backlog uh, maybe it's because, you remember, Paul survives a shipwreck, and probably all the records that charged Paul got lost in the shipwreck, and it would take a while for them to write back to get the charge from Caesarea and bring it back to Rome again. It might, it might be because of that. Probably, I'm out on a limb here, I don't know what I'm talking about, which is usually the case. <laughs> probably the, the accusers didn't bother to show up. I mean, their, their point was to get rid of Paul, to get him out of Jerusalem and having him under arrest is the best possible outcome for them. And so it's probable they didn't show up, and Roman law said that you had the right to face your accusers. If your accusers don't show up, after a while the case is just dismissed. So and maybe that's what happens here. Now we know that um, Paul remains in custody for that time, but then the question asks, well, then what? You know, what, what happens after this two years of being in custody of Rome. Well, tradition has it that Paul was released at the end of that two years and that he went on to Spain as he told the Romans in the book of Romans that he was hoping to do so. Clement, writing in the first century, says that Paul reached the limit of the West. That's from letters 5, verse 1. Um, Paul also says that he made it to Ephesus and Macedonia. We learned that from 1 Timothy. Um, he tells us in uh, Titus that he was also in Crete. 
So he was traveling around after this arrest. Finally, he gets re-arrested, taken back to Rome. This time, he's not in house arrest. He's thrown in prison, the Mamertine prison. And we know that from 2 Timothy. And Paul is arrested. He's put into Rome. Peter is also arrested about this same time. We're at about A.D. 64, and Nero is kind of ranting and wilded about this time. Peter gets crucified. Uh, tradition says that Peter didn't want to be crucified like his Savior and asked to be crucified upside down. Paul would not be subject to torture or crucifixion because he's a Roman citizen. Paul eventually is taken out of the Mamertine prison. He's taken out on a public highway, may have been the Appian Way, and there he's beheaded with a sword. But that's not really the end of the story, is it? That's, the, that's not where the story of Acts ends. It doesn't end with Paul's death or with the last remaining apostle John at the end of the first century. They were in the process of training up the next generation of Christian leaders, and they would pass the baton on to them, and they to the next generation and the next generation. And as a result, the history of the church is still being written today. The Acts seems to end rather abruptly, but it's not incomplete because Acts reveals the, 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 the church's source of power, the, the Holy Spirit. It, reserve, it re reveals the, the pattern of blessing for the church, walking in the Spirit. It re reveals the church's message, which is uh, the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. It reveals the perils of the church, the dangers we face from false teachers within and from teachers without. It reveals the priority of the church, that we are to preach the word to those who know Christ, and we are to preach the gospel to those who do not. And so while Paul is left here in prison at the, or in house arrest at the end of, of Acts, and Paul is now in the center of the greatest empire the world has ever known in a unique position to reach those that otherwise could not be reached. He's in the middle of this vast mission field. And there actually is no ending to the story, and the story continues throughout the centuries where we trust in Jesus Christ, relying on the power of the Holy Spirit, upon the guidance of the Father, um, to continue to spread um, the gospel, all for the glory of God. And so Acts is kind of a never-ending story, which is why, if your Bibles are open, and I hope they are, next week I want to preach from Acts chapter 29 honestly, because where does the gospel go from here? We, remember how we started this book of Acts? We started by asking, what does a spirit-filled church look like? Well, we need to answer that question in the end, too, don't we? If we are the recipients of the baton, we are the Acts 29 church, what does the spirit-filled church look like today? And so we need to answer that question. So even though for those of you who looked, there is no Acts chapter 29. Next week, we're going to talk about Acts chapter 29, the Spirit-filled church in the, in the world today. And then I'm going to take some time off, and we'll talk about Romans when I, when I get back from that. Jesus is the hope of Israel. He is the hope of the world. All history, if you'll pardon the pun, is his story. It's all about Christ. And we may have lost sight of that. And the reason for that is quite simple. We can't see the forest for the trees. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for the studies that we have had through the book of Acts and how the gospel left from Jerusalem to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the world. We thank you that we are not just students of ancient history, but it's now our turn, our leg of the race, that we have received the baton which was handed down to us from Paul. And I pray as a church that we are a spirit-filled church, that we are fulfilling the calling that you have given to us to carry the gospel into the world, to reach the lost with the word of God and to teach them of our saving hope. Father, I thank you again that you communicate these truths not by a Bible teacher, but by the Holy Spirit. And we ask that you would illuminate them to our hearts as we ruminate them on them this week. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.